Well, have any of you ever been let down before? And I'm not talking like, you know, I'm a Minnesota Vikings and Minnesota Twins fan, which is a really big, oftentimes, letdown. And until recently, who else, like baseball, who were the perpetual letdown fans? The Cubs. God bless them. They're doing good again. They won a championship. But, but not just like that kind of, but like really let down. Like to the core of your being, have you just felt, oh, just let down? Um, and, and I was thinking this week as I was getting ready and um, writing the message about how um, the disciples must have felt. And if, if we rewind, you know, back to moments after the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, how let down they would have felt. Uh, Jesus had died. And can you just even imagine for a moment, like just try to enter into, how did his disciples feel? Like for three years they'd done, done life with him, um, face to face, they'd gotten their hopes up, they, they, they could not wait to see how Jesus was going to change everything in their world. Like they went, oh, he's, he, finally, he's the one. And then bang, like that, he dies. And their faith would have been shattered. I mean, just try to imagine uh, after he was crucified, the two nights followed that. After that crucifixion, the two nights after that, prob- probably they were sleepless nights where they were wondering. Maybe they were thinking something like, you know, was everything that I believed a lie? Was Jesus just a man who claimed to be the Messiah like all those before whom who claimed that, that they were the Messiah and then they ended up dead at the hands of the foreign oppressors? Am I, am I just a fool? Did I get played like an idiot? Where are you, God? What? What happened? God, are you even real? Like, do you think any of those thoughts might have crossed their minds? Like, I'm pretty sure that, you know, because the story we read it the way we read it in the Bible, like he dies and then we're on the next day, right? We sometimes forget that there were days that played out there. But not only the disciples, I think, had those struggles. I think... If we get honest, we have to admit that the truth is, well, for me, I've had those episodes in my own life where I have felt that way, where I have been let down, disappointed, unsure, and maybe you felt that way too. Maybe you've had one of those experiences where you wake up in the middle of the night, you stare into the darkness, fear courses through your veins, and maybe even in those moments, sometimes you wonder, "What, what if Christianity isn't true? Like, what if Jesus isn't real? Like, what if after you die, like, that's it, that there's nothing? And if you've had that experience, like, fear can grip you for a moment or longer. (laughs) And right now we're in a series of messages where we started looking at what happened after Easter, after Jesus rose from the dead. Um, We've been calling it Jesus is Alive, Now What?, And we started this out um, looking at how Jesus first appeared after he did rise from the dead to Mary Magdalene and a group of women on Easter morning. And then we looked at the story where where he went on a hike in the afternoon after he was risen from the dead. He hiked seven miles with two disciples that didn't know it was him. They were kept from knowing who he was until the end. And then poof, it's Jesus. And then what happens in the storyline next that we've looked at is that that most of the disciples were together. They were in a room. They had heard that Jesus had risen, but the Bible says they had locked the doors. They still hadn't seen Jesus, so they were still afraid. They had locked the doors, afraid of the people that had crucified Jesus, and then, poof, Jesus appears with them in the room. Now, can you imagine, for those folks, how overcome they were with joy? Like, they had to be completely shocked. It's true, Jesus, Jesus is alive. But there was one of them 
who was missing from the room. One of the disciples wasn't there that first time that Jesus appeared to them. Anybody know his name? Thomas, Thomas yes. And what's his nickname? Anyone know? Yes, right? <laughs> All through history, poor guy. Uh, the disciple became to be known as Doubting Thomas. And actually, I, I think that probably, if we're honest, some of us can relate to him, right? Um, some of us can relate. If, if he didn't see it with his own eyes, he didn't believe it was true. And some of us go, yeah, yeah, I get that, right? So we're going to look at John chapter 20, verse 24. So feel free to turn there. And Brandon, did you hit record? Yes, good job. I've had to do some, yeah, all right, thank you. <laughs> John chapter 20, verse 24. Uh, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, by the way, isn't that a great name? By the way, we came across some really tricky Bible names on Wednesday night in our Bible study that we were doing, and some of them I was like, I have no idea, right? But I figured, you know, sometimes we see these words and then somebody asks you to read a scripture outside in a Bible, uh, out loud in a Bible study and you go, I don't know that word, so I usually skip past it, but this is an easy one, so just to help you out here, uh, just so when you have to read this out loud someday, right, just say it with me, Didymus, right? Yes. It sounds like a bad name for a rapper, totally, but, um, all right, so anyway, so Thomas, also known as Didymus, was one of the 12. He was not with the other disciples when Jesus came, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, can you imagine, at this point, he's probably irritated, maybe frustrated. He's probably heard it more than once. And he gets maybe, I think he's being a little sarcastic with them when he says what we now call him Doubting Thomas for. And now we have sarcastic Doubting Thomas. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. It sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? But as I read this story, I'm really curious, like, like how many of us would be honest enough to say that you've had spiritual doubts at some point in your life? Just raise your hand, raise your hand up if you've ever had spiritual doubts in your life. Okay, those of you perfect people with your hands down, you can just sit there and polish your halo while I talk to the rest of the real people this morning. Because um, everybody that I know has at some point prayed, you know, maybe you prayed a prayer of some kind. You believed that God could. You, you believed God maybe even would, but then he didn't. Not that particular time, and boom, we can get bombarded with doubts. Like, why didn't God do this? Why wouldn't he answer? Why wouldn't he intervene? This was important to me. Or maybe you grew up, maybe you even grew up um, in a simple faith in God, grew up in the church, your family maybe were Christians as you grew up, and then you were a freshman in college. You go to school, you go to freshman philosophy or biology or literature class, and some professor says, this God stuff didn't really actually happen. And boom, you know, you start to wonder, wow, is this real? Like, was this just my parents' faith, or was this mine? And doubt can begin to flood and overwhelm you. Or maybe, maybe you did believe in God um, and served him even for a long time, but then something really bad happened to you or someone treated you a certain way that should not have treated you that way. Or, or maybe something bad happened to you or someone that you love and you thought, wait a minute, if God is good, then why did he let that happen? Like if God is all powerful, why didn't he stop it? And those real life moments... In those moments, we can probably relate to Thomas. 
Like something inside of us can get shaken and we can become overwhelmed by doubt. And so I'm going to tell you my not-so-secret secret here. Um, I have doubts. I have doubts. Now listen, I've spent most of my life thinking and reading and teaching and studying about God. I grew up in the church. I went to a Christian college. I started working as a youth pastor when I was 20 years old, those poor kids. But I was 20 and youth pastoring... I played in a Christian band. I did trips um, to other countries and missions trips where we told other people about God. I walked the straight and narrow. I've preached to thousands of people. I've seen miracles, and I have doubts. Like, can I admit that here to my Hope family? Like, now here's, here's one that'll make you wonder if you, it was okay to see you say. So I'm gonna, people are like, well, what do you doubt about? Okay, so I'm going to go out there on this one a little bit, okay? Sometimes, sometimes, when I think about, here's one of my doubts, I think about the afterlife, there is a part of me, I will be honest, there's a part of me that thinks, well, listen, if it all turns out to be true, like that the angels are singing, that death is defeated, that the role is called up yonder and there I am, right? There's part of me that might be a little surprised, like, oh, well, what do you know? It's, it is true after all, right? So I believe in it, but I sometimes have doubts about stuff. And here at Hope, where we declare to everyone on our front sign, right, that no perfect people are allowed, is it okay at this church and this church family for us to have questions and consider objections and wonder about stuff out loud? Okay, well, let me try again. Is it okay? Okay, you had me worried for a moment there, okay. Because um, here at Hope, it is okay, right? Yeah. It's okay for us not to pretend. It's not the kind of place where we're going to split ourselves into two camps of people. Well, there are the inferiors who doubt and the superiors that don't doubt. And is it possible, maybe even is it rational, to have faith in the presence of doubt? To have both at the same time? Because that's the truth about me. I do have doubt, and I also have faith, too. Like, I've bet my life, my life, and my life's work, and my life's energy on having faith in Jesus. So I think there's both, if we're honest. Uh, there's a book by John Orberg with the not very catchy title, Faith and Doubt. <laughs> and um, he says that the most important word in the title is the one in the middle, and. And because most of the honest people that I know, they are a mix of the two, faith and doubt. In fact, while many times doubt can feel like this nagging, irritating voice that we'd rather just get rid of in silence, I echo John Orberg's question when he asks this. He says, is it possible that doubt might be one of those unwelcome guests of life that sometimes in the right circumstances is good for you? And I wonder, with him, right, like, yeah, might doubt actually push us towards whatever, studying or digging deeper or discussing, and that the end result of that doubt could actually be a stronger faith, and where doubt would end up helping us, not because we squashed it or ignored it or tried to run away from it or pretend that we never have doubts, because actually maybe doubt could have us, help us to have a deeper faith, a deeper trust in God. Maybe it could help us to have more confidence that what we hope we believe is actually true. We could have more faith in it because the reason we got there would have been because we didn't pretend that we don't doubt. We didn't hide from our doubt. 
which would be just consistent for us to live that way because the truth is, again, the honest truth is that every single one of us are a mixture of faith and doubt. Now, I bet that Thomas, in the story here, when Jesus was with him for those three years, I bet he was like us, right? When we are absolutely sometimes convinced and confident that God is real, those of us that have been Christians for a long time, there are times we go, oh, no, 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 I know, right? He's working on my behalf. He's real. No matter what I face, we trust that God is going to take care of us. But then sometimes, like, something happens that's confusing, now, sometimes it's weird, because when it happens, my faith actually gets stronger. I lean in, and then sometimes, I don't know why, something happens, and instead of it bringing me closer to God, um, I'm plagued by doubts all of a sudden. So, suddenly, I'm doubting Doug. And that doubt, it just nips at our heels, lurks in the background. Maybe it's just kind of there, or maybe it's the kind of doubt that's way bigger than that. It feels like it's going to overwhelm us, that it's going to sweep every last part of our faith away. And I think maybe there's no harder place or no more difficult place where that is more likely to happen than when we go through tragedy. Tragedy has the potential to really nip at and overwhelm our faith. Um, Dostoevsky, a Russian philosopher from the 1800s who believed, he believed in God. Um, but he wrote that the death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. And I get that, right? I hear that, I get that. That would ignite doubt in any of us, I think, who are honest. Like, okay, yep, where is God then? And the thing is, people have witnessed more unimaginable things that would give us plenty of reasons to doubt God's existence, whether or not... Um, and whether or not God even cares for us, depending on the stuff we've seen. Um, Holocaust survivor Eli Wiesel tells of his first night in a concentration camp, seeing a wagon load of babies driven up. They were unloaded into a, thrown into a ditch of fire, and he wrote this. He said, never shall I forget the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Now, that's honest. And I think it's understandable. Like, this is the world that we live in, and we have to grapple with these things, that our world is fallen. And ever since Adam and Eve, the choices that humankind have made have sent us down horrific paths where people do horrific things to each other, and it's easy to blame God for what people do. And I'm not even going to try to dive into some, you know, answers, magic answers about, okay, this is why all these things happen, because I don't think it's wise for us just to spout out with you know, spout off with, with trite, cliched answers when there are people around us who are wrestling with tragedy and doubt. You know, we like to say things like, well, you know, God's in control. God has a plan. Careful, 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 right? Because when we do that to someone who's struggling, we send this message like, hey, hey, sh sh knock it off. That's not okay. You can't be honest about your doubts here. We shut them down. And I wonder, instead of shutting people's reasonable doubts down, what about here at Hope? Can, could we learn to sit quietly with people and let them honestly voice their doubts? 
Because when we don't, we can actually drive people away from God. When we jump in there to try to fix it, right? Like sometimes some Christians could be shallow. Sometimes, you know, in good-intentioned hearts, out of good-intentioned hearts, we attempt to fix people. Sometimes we respond quickly with bad answers. Sometimes preachers can add enormous pain to the people that are suffering around us. Um, Some preachers would say, well, you brought that suffering on. Your sin brought that suffering on. Sometimes preachers tell people, well, you haven't been healed or delivered because you don't have enough faith. And that's just not helpful. So friends, when doubt comes, and when people come here to hope and voice honest doubts, can we be a place who doesn't rush in too quickly with quick answers, but we're willing to sit, to listen, to love people instead of rushing in too soon to fix it? See, Thomas, in our story, he had to wait eight days before Jesus reappeared. Eight days, can you imagine? Now, part of what he did was really good. Um, This time, he didn't leave the other disciples, right? He had doubts, but he hung around the other disciples, and it's good to be around other people when we are in our doubt, when we are in our pain, because sometimes being with others can help soothe the pain, um, knowing that we are not alone, no matter what, no matter what our doubts are. Um, It can help us to cope with those doubts. It can help to heal the heart, even if the doubts are still there, just being with people. And that's what he did. He he waited with the other disciples, and it's my prayer here at Hope that that we will love other people that come here as they are. And if there are people who are in doubt for, you know, eight days or eight weeks or eight months or eight years, we're going to accept them as they are. We're going to let them know they have a place here in our community, um, that no one stands alone, that everyone belongs, and at Hope, you really can come as you are. (laughs) We love you. See, friends, because no matter the reason for our doubts, one thing I do know for sure, it is important to be honest and real about them. Now, I think what happens is oftentimes we tend to operate from two different extremes when it comes to faith and doubt. Okay, On the one end, you've got this, I'll call it the hyper-faith crowd, right? We fake, we pretend, well, I don't have any doubts. And we hope oftentimes by doing that, that maybe the doubts, they'll just vanish, they'll just go away, and sure, they gnaw at us for a while, but if I can just pretend those doubts aren't there, maybe they'll just leave me alone, so we fake it. Other people go find a church or a preacher who exudes perfect confidence, memorable cliches, and enough acronyms, alliterations, and slogans to make you think, yes, this is the path to a doubt-free existence, right? I just need someone to tell me what to think and feed me an airtight theological system. And that, that formula is actually very popular, and for many people, they would say, well, no, that works for me. And sure, it works, until it doesn't. We have family members Um, People we love in our own family who um, have gone down that path and that airtight, you know, we got all the answers, we're in, you're out, that backfired. And there's a lot of pain um, because some of those family members aren't even sure they believe anymore. It doesn't work (laughs) to fake it, friends. Um, So, on the one side again, here's the extremes, the the pretend I don't have any doubts, I arrogantly, in fact, I arrogantly attack anyone who does have a doubt, and, and I'm in the fake it till you make it crowd, which 
by the way, fake it till you make it, would be pretending or lying. I don't think that's a strategy Jesus would endorse. I'm just saying. So let's call this side, you know, the pretending um, hyperfaith side, okay? So that's the one side. And on the other side, there's these folks who are the hyper-doubters, right? They spend all their time and energy in their doubts. That's all they worry about. That's all they do. And the truth is, I'd rather be around those people because at least they're being honest. <laughs> but those folks can carry that doubt to the extreme. And sometimes I've seen that they can embrace their doubt as a way to define them. Like, it becomes their identity. Well, like, well, who's to say? Can we actually know anything about God, or can we know anything about anything? Like, if there's not scientific evidence of things like, you know, God's existence to us to reliably depend on, then there's no real way to know the truth. So let's just float over here, always consumed by doubt, unanchored to anything. And friends, either side, hyper-faith or hyper-doubt, living in either extreme misses the mark. But as I think even about kind of the hyper-doubt side, I, I wonder, like, do some people just want to doubt? Like, honestly, there are circles where they think it's just way more savvy, it's way more smart to be a total doubter. A guy named um, Christopher Hitchens, he's a British journalist. He wrote a book, and I'll just give you the title, uh, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And the title pretty much tells you where the book heads. Um, God is not great, why religion poisons everything. And the truth is, he makes some great points because religion gone wrong is damaging. And far too often, uh, that's all that our culture sees. They look at the church and they look at people who appear to be religious and the sins done by the people of God in the name of God look pretty horrific. So he's got a point. Uh, another famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, says in The God Delusion, he says this, <clears throat> get ready, ready, here's the run. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, that was the tricky one, megalomaniacal, and I'll stop there because after that he really starts to get hostile. I mean, I was like... <laughs> Um, and listen, I don't want to attack atheists or doubters. I actually, I want to listen to doubters. Like I'm saying, I want to listen. I don't want to just argue with them. In fact, I don't do a lot of that, you know, debate stuff with people because I know me. And when I'm trying to win arguments, I know that I can turn into an argumentative jerk and nobody wants to be around me then. Not even me. Okay. So, um, so when I see books, written by, you know, even Christians who are like, this, anybody who think, doesn't agree with this is an idiot, or atheists who write, you know, anybody who doesn't agree with this is an idiot and they're evil. I just go, wow, wow, these extremes are so unhelpful for people. They don't actually help. Ortberg again says this, I have read and known too many people who don't believe in God who are better and wiser than me, but I do not think the professional doubters will make faith go away. The predictors keep dying, and faith keeps spreading. Yeah, I think he's right, because the end of God, the end of faith has been predicted for centuries, but it hasn't happened, has it? But, but there are some pretty intelligent people who live in that hyper-doubt world, though, 
I'll be honest, right? And I think some of us that lean toward intellectual understanding, which is not a bad thing, right? I think some of us maybe sometimes wonder, well, maybe if I was smart enough, then I could finally put all my doubts to rest. I could, I could settle the whole faith thing once and for all, right? If I was just smarter, right? But as Ortberg continues and points out, he says, making the right choices about faith, like making good choices for life in general, does not seem to rest primarily on IQ. Smart people mess up as easily as the rest of us. Um, here's an example. Uh, maybe you've heard this one before. There's three men. They're in an airplane. There's a, a pilot. There's a boy scout. And there's the world's smartest man, right? World's smartest man is in the plane. Um, suddenly the engine fails. The plane's going to go down. There is no hope. And there are only two parachutes. So the world's smartest man, he grabs one. He says, ah, I'm sorry about this, fellas, but I'm the smartest man in the world. I've got a responsibility to this planet. And he jumps off the plane. The pilot turns to the Boy Scout, and he tells the Boy Scout how he, the pilot, I've lived this really long, full life. And he tells the Boy Scout, you know, you've got your whole life in front of you. He says, young man, just take the parachute and, and live well, young man. Boy Scout says, relax, Captain. The world's smartest man, he just jumped out of the plane with my backpack. <laughs> and I think there's nothing wrong with being smart, there's nothing wrong with being brilliant, but our world is full of smart people jumping out of planes with backpacks. And maybe that's why 1 Corinthians 1.27 says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the unseemingly or the seemingly wise. Ultimately, it's not about IQ. There is something deeper to the human condition. There's something more. And what we can count on, what we can count on for sure is this. Sooner or later, the plane is going down. And we are all on the same plane of life. And smart guys and Boy Scouts alike, all of us have to jump. Everyone has to choose a parachute or a backpack. Um, and none of us will actually know who has chosen wisely, maybe until after we jump. Now back to our story here with uh, the disciple Thomas. Remember, um, he's in pain. Like, he says these hurtful, like, I gotta see it or I'm not gonna believe it. He's in pain. He's grieving. And I kind of wonder if the reason he wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus first showed up is that his grief was so deep, he just couldn't bear to be around anyone. And have you ever, like, have you ever been in that kind of pain before? Like, for that moment, at least, you just couldn't bear to be around anyone right then? Um, that, that's okay, actually. That's, that's, that's probably good and healthy, at least for a bit. It's not a permanent way to live. Like, we need to take time to mourn. We need to take time by ourselves. But we can't then long-term isolate. So Thomas has come back. He's staying connected to the other disciples. Even while he's still doubting, verse 26 says, a week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Which, you know. I'm kind of glad for it, because if it was me standing there and poof, Jesus is there, I'd be like freaking out, like, Jesus, I don't know about this new magic trick. This is weird. Like, you were freaking me out. Uh, verse 27, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. 
And Thomas <laughs> says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. I mean, this was a declaration of faith in the highest degree. Not only did seeing Jesus convince Thomas that Jesus was alive, but now he believes that Jesus is truly God. And from what Jesus said to him about, okay, do this, try it, man, go for it, right? I love that Jesus knew somehow what Thomas had said. I'm going to put my finger here. i got to put my hand in there, right? Jesus knew. It's like, all right, here you go. Like Jesus shows up and he doesn't yell at Thomas. He doesn't shame Thomas. He doesn't scold Thomas. He doesn't demote him from being one of the disciples. No, no. Jesus came for Thomas with compassion. Like he's direct with him, right? Like, okay, okay, bro, here you go. Here I am. <laughs> go for it. And we don't know whether he touched him or didn't. It doesn't say. But it's amazing. Jesus doesn't condemn Thomas. He comes for him. He actually honors. I think he honors Thomas. Like, Thomas didn't try to fake it till he made it. He was hurt. He spoke truthfully from his heart, and eventually, Jesus came for him. And I kind of wonder, you know, instead of calling him Doubting Thomas for a nickname, maybe we need to call him Honest Thomas. Honest Thomas. Now, I read this episode, and maybe the thought occurs to you what occurs to me. I read this, I go, well, yeah, okay, great. Thomas got to see Jesus, wonderful. If, if I saw Jesus like the disciples did, then I would never, ever, ever, ever have any doubts at all, right? If I could just, if I could, let me see Jesus, right? I'll believe, right? Or some of you would be, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go along with Thomas on this one. Let, let me see Jesus, I'll become a Christian. And I get that response. I totally get that response. It makes perfect sense. I think Jesus knew that would be our response. Um, and I love how they recorded his next words, what he said after this, because it shows how well aware this Jesus was of how this story could land on maybe some of us after the fact. Like Thomas, yeah, he got his wish. He got to see Jesus. And verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And I'm so grateful that Jesus said that right there. Because most of us haven't seen Jesus, not in a physical way, right? We don't get to have what Thomas got. But right here in this verse, Jesus, I feel like I'm pointing at the tree. I'm pointing at the screen now. But in this verse right here, right, Jesus blesses us because we haven't seen him, and many of us are still willing to believe, aren't we? See, Jesus understands doubt. Jesus, I think, understands this is not easy for us, right, to trust in him when we don't know fully or understand all of our faith, when we don't know why tragedy happens or why sometimes God seems to show up and other times we don't know where he is. Jesus knows that faith is not easy. He understands and he blesses us. He blesses us in this. Now, for some of you maybe that aren't followers of Jesus, like you're like, okay, whatever, right? I, I get that, right? I'm not gonna lie, okay? Because deciding to enter into faith, especially when you have huge doubts, can be a really difficult decision. Um, we just don't know everything, and how much do we have to know before we can decide that we're going to follow Jesus, right? Have any of you ever heard of um, Pascal's Wager? 
Pascal's wager. He was a French philosopher. Basically, this is a terrible summary. He said this. He said, listen, if God exists and you believe in him, then living his way, you know, life is better here on earth then, and then when you die, the upside, if you wager and guess and believe that he's real, and then when you die, like, <laughs> the upside is tremendous, right? Heaven, eternal life, etc." And then, essentially, he said, but if God is not real, and you believed anyway, but you were wrong, but then you die, then there's nothing, right? If there's nothing anyways, then you really haven't lost much, have you? So bet on God and trust his way. There's far more to gain if you're right and far more to lose if you don't, right? And here's my kind of dumb guy summary of a great philosopher. Choose Jesus, right? Choose faith. What do you really have to lose? And I think um, Pascal's wager is, is actually, um, I think it's a pretty, pretty powerful thing. Um, I think it's a pretty good wager, but, but I like the picture that Henry Nouwen paints about faith and doubt. Um, Henry Nouwen was a priest. Um, he often talked, and he has written some amazing books, um, but he talked a lot about faith and pain and struggle, and he tells uh, this story. It was the final year of his life. He took a sabbatical from working and writing. He longed for God after all these years of life and ministry and helping people. He longed for God, but suddenly he found it hard to pray. And he says he found himself drawn, this is a true story, to a circus act, right? So he got this Dutch priest who had taught at Ivy League universities, right? And he decides, as an old man, I'm going to go hang out with the greatest show on earth, right? So, so he does. Uh, it was a trapeze act, the Flying Rodleys. And so he'd watch them perform, and he got to know them. Now, today's artists, um, they use nets, and even when you use a net and fall, they can still be really dangerous. You can still die hitting a net, right? So back then and now, it's a treacherous job. And in the Flying Rodleys, there were five members in the act. There were three flyers. There were two catchers, the flyers and catchers. So what happens is the flyer, wow, we've lost our screen on the second one. Oh, man, Sorry. Those of you that can see this can see the picture, right? All right, here you go. Um, the flyers and the catchers, right? So here's how it works. The flyer climbs the step. He mounts the platform. He grasps the trapeze, and he leaps off the platform, swinging through the air, using his body for momentum, swinging faster and faster. And then the catcher on the other side hangs from his knees on another trapeze with his hands free, to reach out and catch them. Now, the moment of truth for this whole act is when the flyer finally lets go, sails into the earth with no connection to anything, does a flip or a twist maybe. Just picture that right there, just in midair, in the middle of a somersault, just kind of free, freeze frame it in your mind. Now, in that moment... When that flyer is in that space, and there's absolutely nothing to keep the flyer from falling to his death, what do you imagine that moment, just suspended, attached to nothing, feels like to the flyer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you gotta wonder, just even the sensation, like, is he exhilarated? Like, woohoo, fully alive? Um, every cell in his body screaming out? Um, do you think in that moment feels any fear? <laughs> yeah, if he's not crazy, right? It's um, probably a combination of both. 
Now continue to imagine, let the, um, the freeze frame just slow motion keep happening next, right? The next moment here, the catcher swings into view, been timing his arcs perfectly. So the flyer's in air. The catcher arrives just as the flyer loses momentum and begins to drop towards earth, perfectly timed. The catcher, hanging upside down, <laughs> catches the arms of the flyer. Now here's the deal. Because of the way it happens, the flyer can't see the catcher. Everything's a blur. So what the flyer feels is that they're suddenly snatched out of the air and the catcher takes the flyer home. And the flyer is very, very glad. <laughs> now, um, Henry Nowen spent some time getting to know the flyers. Um, flyers are small. They weigh about 150 pounds or less because if you're a catcher, you don't want a flyer who looks like me, okay? All right? <laughs> And so now and learned about the equipment they use. Um, they, they would have socks that were filled with magnesium dry powder for their hands, especially for a guy named Joe. Joe was one of the catchers, and the flyers told Henry, you know, yeah, Joe sweats a lot, so if you're a, you know, if you're a flyer, you probably don't want a catcher with sweaty hands. <laughs> um, now, here's where trusting comes in. He says, letting go is always an act of trust. Letting go is always an act of trust. Rodley who was the leader of the, the group, told Nowen, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public may think I'm the star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me when the split-second precision happens and has to grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. And Nowen asked him, well, how does it work? And he answered him softly, he said, the secret is that the flyer does nothing. The catcher does everything. And when I fly to Joe, I simply have to stretch out my arms and hands and wait. Henry asked him, you do nothing? And here's what he said. A flyer must fly and a catcher must catch. The flyer must trust with outstretched arms that the catcher will be there waiting for him. Nowen writes, when Rodley said this with so much conviction, the words of Jesus flashed into my mind. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I heard, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Remember that you are the beloved child of God. He will be there with you and for you when you make your long jump. Don't try to grab him. He will grab you. Just stretch out your arms and hands and trust, trust, trust. So faith and doubt, my friends. In big ways, in small ways, again and again, we come to that place where, again, we choose faith. Whether we choose faith for the first time when we decide, in spite of some of our doubts and questions, we decide to trust Jesus and follow him. Or those of us who have been Christians for a long time, for decades, we come to an honest patch of doubt. We need that faith to be reactivated. And at either point, when we find ourselves at that swinging point, we are all going to have to let go. And when we let go, we get to choose who we will jump to. Like, we get to choose, like, who's our catcher going to be in that moment? 
Now, we don't get to choose, like, I wish I could say, hey, well, you get to choose your level of certainty, right? I wish we could choose to have perfect faith with no doubt, but that's not the offer. What we choose, when we choose to let go, to trust our catcher, what we choose is this, we choose to believe. We get to choose faith, um, which we can't fully see, we can't absolutely know, which is why it's called faith. <laughs> but God will catch us. And he will grow us. And he will connect to our hearts. And when we take that risk, every time we take that risk, he will connect to our hearts and he will begin to do something in us. See, there's this gift of faith that God gives us when we let go and choose to trust him. Like, when we let our honest doubts come up, like, let it press you to ask questions, to, to, to study, to discuss, to wonder and, and also be willing to pray, like be willing to take a risk of faith to choose to let go and trust Jesus. See, it's not all about having all of our questions answered. If I got all my questions answered, I have no doubts, then I could let go. No, 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 because if that were the case, then none of us could take a leap of faith, could we? None of us could take that leap. See, no, we take the leap, we let go, even though we still have doubts. And maybe there's some here that think, I can't really take that first step of faith, right? But friends, again, a flyer must fly and a catcher must catch, right? The flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there waiting for him. So will you be the flyer? Will you fly? Will you stretch out your arms and hands and trust that God will catch you? And for each of us here today, this applies in different ways. You know, some of you know that you need God to catch you in a situation that you're having with your family. Some of you know that you have something going on with your kids or your parents, and you need God to catch you. You know you do. You have a, maybe a financial situation that you're dealing with or a, or a relationship or there's a job. There's something oh, that is so difficult, and you know that you need God to catch you. You know you need him to catch you. And others of you, maybe you haven't made a decision to make that first leap, that first jump to, to receive Jesus, to trust him, to have faith in him. Maybe you still have questions and you have doubts. And my question for you would be, well, what would it take for you to say yes to Jesus? Because you're not ever going to have all your questions answered. That's okay to have questions, but you can still come to Jesus as you are. You can begin to follow him and go on this path of faith. Will you, if that's you, will you let go today? Will you pray today even to make a decision to follow Jesus right now, right here today? Like, don't be afraid. You are loved by God, and he will be there to grab you when you make that jump. Don't try to grab him. He will grab you. Just stretch out your hands and your arms and trust, trust, trust. Tony, will you um, and the team come? There might be some of you today that you recognize. Yeah, that's me. I, um, I have some doubts, but yeah, that's true. I want to let go. I want to make that leap. And maybe you're here this morning, and you'd say something like, hey, you know what I do? I feel lost. I am not sure spiritually what's going on in my life. I don't know where I stand with God. Um, but I want you to hear me if that's you here and you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, hear me, Jesus gave his life for you so that you could live. He was raised from the dead so that anyone, 
and anyone includes you, right? Anyone that calls on his name will become a child of God. You'll be saved in a child of God. And I don't believe that you're here this morning um, as an accident. I think that we are here for a reason today. And for some of us, the reason that you are here today is that it's time to put your faith in Christ now, today. That's why he brought you here. And you may have had lots of doubts before, but today can be the day that you believe, that you can say, okay, I stretch out my hands, my arms. I give my life to Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. And that may apply to some of you. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. So we're going to pray. Everybody, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? Every, every head bowed, every eye closed. This is, this is a decision time. And Father, thank you. God, thank you for your presence and your goodness. And friends, with nobody looking around, if you want to say yes to Jesus, if you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus, but you want to make that decision to follow Jesus this morning, will you raise your hand and just make eye contact with, with me right now? Would you just wave your hand and just look at me? If today is your day to begin that relationship with Christ, is there anyone here? Let me pray. Father, um, I pray for courage for those that have yet to cross the line of faith. And I pray that even in these moments, um, as we get ready to dismiss, maybe uh, they would talk to the person they've come with or they would meet up with one of us on the prayer team and that they would make that commitment to you, that they would pray to receive you today. And God, thank you. Thank you that you meet all of us exactly where we are at. God, so many of us this morning have places in our life where we are needing to trust you, and it feels scary. There is a situation in our life where we need you to show up big, and if you don't show up, we feel like we're going to fall. We might even feel like we're going to die. So God, will you, especially in those areas, for my brothers and sisters that are here, Will you meet us? Um, yeah, Jesus, thank you that in our faith and in our doubt, you come for us again and again and again. In Jesus' name. Will you stand with us for a closing song?